Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading Short and Deep, The Apparition in the Prize Ring by Robert E. Howard. First published in Ghost Stories, April 1929, under the pseudonym John Taverell, who claims to be uh, one of the greatest managers in the history of the fight game. Um, no, that's just Robert E. Howard. <laughs> but uh, this had a subsequent pub- publication, actually fairly recently, maybe in the last 20 years or so, um, under a slightly different title and in a slightly different edition, um, the text is different, so uh, maybe that's the restored text or something like that. Um, and that is The Spirit of Tom Molyneux. Um, I, I've listened to the audiobook of that, and um, it, it does have a lot of little changes. It makes the story a little longer. doesn't really um, make a massive difference. But I'm a... I'm not the biggest boxing fan, and yet I'll read... Pretty much anything by Robert E. Howard. How did you take this story when I suggested it to you? <laughs> well, um, I don't tend to read. <laughs> I, I, I do not have a natural inclination to read uh, boxing stories. Um, I found this one to be in some in terms of the portrayal of the action of the fight, uh, knowledgeable, as far as I could tell, mm-hmm. from having watched lots of fights on TV as a kid, because it was a, it was cheap content in those days when mm-hmm. TV was just becoming widespread. Um, it seemed to me that it was remarkably well done as description of action. Mm-hmm. Uh, the story as a whole seemed to me to be interesting thematically because uh, its ostensible question didn't strike me as very important. That just may be taste, but its underlying issues are, in fact, very important. Uh, If you don't mind, let me just, you know, remind folks of what the story is or tell them for the first time. Uh, It's published in a magazine called Ghost Stories. It's 1929 before the crash. So this is a high time in America for a lot of people. Uh, Things are feeling uh, like they're loosening up. There's a lot of action in the jazz age. This is a story in which we are supposed to believe that John Taverell, this fictitious greatest, one of the greatest managers in the history of the fight game, must have written before because it says Readers of this magazine will probably remember Ace Jessel, the big Negro boxer whom I managed a few years ago. Um, now, that's that's kind of interesting. Why would readers of a ghost story magazine know something about this fellow if, in fact, John Taverell hadn't written about Ace Jessel previously in that magazine? Interesting assertion. The story told by John Taverell is that Ace Jessel was a spectacularly good fighter. He had his physical attributes uh, at the top of the game, but uh, what he lacked was the killer instinct. 
In fact, that's explicit. He lacked the killer instinct. Now, he's black. This is 1929 in the United States. The champion is white, but there had been a hundred years earlier. Nothing is said about it here, but that means a hundred years earlier. Um, it means before emancipation. There had been the greatest boxing champion, America's great champion, a fellow named Tom Malino, who was black. And the story of that man's existence is what moved Ace Jessel to go into the fight game at all. We know of uh, this fellow Molyneux that he uh, dies in Ireland. Uh, gets lots of money. Jessel, who is winning and winning and winning, uh, but clearly not getting paid a whole lot for it, finds a painting of Tom Molyneux and buys it. It costs his purse from four successive fights. But it was worth it to him because of his inspiration by this figure. Along comes Mankiller Gomez, whose name tells us he does have the killer instinct. He also, it turns out, is black. He also is of African descent. But unlike Ace Jessel, who is an American and admires an American champion, um, he is not an African-American. He is an African. Mm -hmm. He's called a full-blooded blooded Senegalese. Interesting phrase because full-blooded, it seems to me, is what in 1929 you would have people use to refer to Native Americans. Mm. So there's all kinds of race stuff going on in this story and geography. Uh, it's sort of like our blacks versus their blacks. And Mankiller Gomez, who was named Gomez by the Spaniard who found him in the jungle, um, Mankiller Gomez is a savage, a brute. Whereas Ace Jessel is given all kinds of animalistic descriptions, you know, the grace of a leopard and so on and so forth. But the his one flaw as a boxer is he doesn't want to beat the pound. He doesn't want to pound people and the fans get annoyed. But every now and then, if a really smart boxer comes along, um, it forces Ace Jessel to actually be more brutal. And that gets the fans blood going. So they like that. Well, our author, our putative uh, manager, John Taverell, doesn't want his man, uh, whom he thinks of more as a friend than just a client, excuse me, meal ticket, he uses that term, mm -hmm. uh, doesn't want him to have to face Mankiller Gomez. He doesn't want him to get hurt. Um, but, you know, the fans really, really want it, and so he agrees. And Ace figures that he's probably not going to be able to do it, but he does it anyway, right? Because he says, Mr. John, uh, you know, I'll try my best. He refers to Tom Molina as Mr. Tom, Mr. Tom. And uh, we are told that before the fight, it seems as if Ace Jessel is almost praying mm -hmm. for help to this life-size portrait of Tom Molina during the fight, which is described in brutal detail. Um, it looks for sure as if Ace is going to be crumpled. I mean, his face is cut. He's bruised. He's bleeding. He's staggered. But 
John takes out the portrait of of Tom Malina. Ace sees it, and then, if we can believe the eyes of John Taverell, it's as if the the man himself, Tom Malina, in some kind of ectoplasmic way, <laughs> joins in and and fills the body of Ace Jessel. And together, Ace and Tom beat Command Killer Gomez down. At the end of the story, John Tavril says, you know, I think it was just some hallucination on my part and that Ace got really inspired by seeing uh, this painting, except that the referee said, didn't you think there was a fourth man in the ring there? So he leaves it to the, to the, uh, the reader to decide what he really saw. The reader in the last paragraph, as far as I'm concerned, the old superstition, that is that a painting, for example, can channel the spirit of the dead, um, is justified. I believe firmly today that a portrait is a door through which astral beings may pass back and forth between this world and the next, whatever the next world may be, and that a great unselfish love is strong enough to summon the spirits of the dead to the aid of the living. So the story seems to end with, so I think ghosts are real. Uh, I'd rather focus on what does this guy mean by an unselfish love? Is it the love of Ace for Tom or is it the almost suicidal love of Ace for John? Yeah. Um, I've read, a, I've read a number of issues of uh, ghost stories magazine. Um, going through and, you know, looking at the stories and cause I, I like, horror stories i like uh you know fantasy stories but ghost stories magazine is not the greatest market <laughs> uh, for me anyways and the reason is um they they do kind of a mix of fiction quote-unquote fiction stories and um sort of true ghost stories and i think very much so what's going on in this is that howard is playing to the market a little bit um, if not a lot, so that he can sell the story and, you know, tell a story that he wants to tell because he was a boxer himself. He, he loved boxing. You can see that and feel that in this story. Um, so he's got a, a, a sort of a lady, a lady or the Tiger style ending. Um, what do you think? <laughs> it's up to right. you. But then he sort of tips his hand and says, no, no, it's definitely... <laughs> And if it's up to me, right? And then he also has, um, he has a, quote, um, uh, a cold-eyed sportsman of the old school come up to him and say, am I crazy? Or was there a fourth man in that ring when Ace Jessel dropped Gomez? I love how he has to say, Ace Jessel dropped Gomez. Like, if they're both just witnessing in that, they wouldn't have had, was there a fourth man in that ring when he dropped him? Right, that's would have how it actually had, right? But for the retelling in this story, we have to have the names. For a minute, I thought I, I saw a he says I saw a broad, squat, funny-looking Negro standing there beside Ace. Don't grin, you bum! It wasn't in the picture you were holding up. I saw that too. It was a real man, and he looked like the one in the picture. He was standing there a moment, and then he was gone. God, that fight! 
must have got on my nerves. So now not only do we have the evidence, the testimony of the author, right, that this is a true story, John Taverell, but also uh, an independent witness, right, <laughs> who's not named, but nevertheless we can trust because he's steely-nerved, cold-eyed, a sportsman of the old school. And in fact, he's the referee. He was supposed to be paying attention. Well, it doesn't quite say that. It says, but after the bout, the oh, you're right. It does say the referee. Um, I don't know. If he was the referee, though, I was thinking, like, it's just uh, some other guy. But you're right. It does say that. I was thinking if the referee, why why doesn't he say, like, what are you doing in here? Get out of that ring. <laughs> Get out of this ring. Right? Because he was only there for a moment. Yeah, yeah. Um, now... I uh, went deep down in researching a lot of the stuff that's going on in this story. Um, so, you, did you read a, read about Tom Molyneux's career as a boxer? Is he no. Famous? Yeah. So, the, 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 because the title, um, the Spirit of Tom Molyneux, is the alternate title for this story, um, I thought it pretty important to dig deep on this. So, Tom Molyneux was uh, born into slavery in the United States and then had a um, uh, boxing career after he was freed but he was freed uh because his um his personal owner uh was the son of a rich plantation owner who uh used to box him for money right so take him to a and he one night made a bet uh with another rich uh landowner in the, s- the southern states um that he his man could beat another slave at boxing and the bet was for a hundred thousand dollars this is in whoa 1790s period right so that's a hell of a lot of money um in the process of training for this fight uh he became molyneux became friends with his trainer who convinced the uh owner to free him if he wins and to pay him a 100 bucks as well he won <laughs> he left the United States, uh, well, the southern states, went to New York and straight to England and had a boxing career there and then, as you say, died in Ireland. Um, it says it in the story, too. I was I was very interested in this because it, it's sort of the background for the story. Tom Molyneux, the spirit of him, is uh, haunting the story as well as haunting the... the, the uh, boxing arena in this case and so it, it's a fascinating life story and he had um in his greatest fight the the one that you know was the biggest reputation he 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 was touted and rightly so in many ways as the champion of of, of america right he had beat everybody in the, his home state and then he went to new york and he beat everybody there and he left new york went to england where england is the place for boxing in the world the big place right um at that time and he took on the british champion the english champion who technically won but shouldn't have and it happens in kind of a very interesting reverse way as to what happens in here so in this story we've got the two boxers hammering each other um with one without the killer instinct right and uh the one who's more brutal and brutish um, more savage, all words that are sort of in the story. Uh, he he gets uh, kind of beaten 
in an unfair way by a ghost assisting Ace Jessel's arm and helping him pound the guy in the face, right? Um, in the original Tom Molyneux true story, Molyneux should have beaten the his rival, Tom Cribb, um, and the reason he should have beaten him is because he knocked him out. But they were so anti-American uh, and perhaps anti-black that they let the fight continue. But this was after the crowd rushed in onto the into the ring, and um, one of the persons in the crowd broke Molyneux's hand, uh, several of his fingers at least, and they had to continue the fight, and he, he did lose. But he should have technically won, but because of the way it was sort of the unfair refer- refing going on. So that Molyneux isn't as is well known as he should be because technically he did, he wasn't the champion of the world, right? But really he should have been. So that's why boxing aficionados think of him as such a great guy. And you can see why a black man who is making his living as a boxer in the early 20th century would be so fond of, you know, his predecessor spiritually um, who was making a play for being the world champion, heavyweight champion of the world, right? Where they didn't really have that term in the uh, 19th century. They did have it by the time this story is written. And um, I just love that it, they, they're telling a parallel story. One of the things that shows up in here is that we find out Molyneux bought the, bought the portrait of... Uh, sorry... Jessel bought the portrait of Molyneux when he was in London, um, and he paid a pretty sum for it. Obviously, he was there boxing because it took four bouts for him to pay for it. And then uh, we also learned that he first found out about Molyneux when he was working on the waterfront, and it's implied in New York. There is a page in our version of the PDF on page 21 that has a sort of an inset that I, I would believe is written by the editor rather than written by by uh, Howard himself. But it sort of summarizes what's going on. And I just want to read this because I think it gives us a little insight into the connections that I think are very interesting. Ace, Jessel, Phantom, Ace Jessel's Phantom Guardian. As a little black boy toiling on the wharves, and that is actually mentioned earlier in the story, Uh, Ace Jessel heard the story of Tom Molyneux, the Negro boxer who became the first champion of America, and it fired him with ambition. Throughout his strange, brilliant career as a fighter, he worshipped Molyneux's memory, believing, and then this is the sort of the negative here, with childlike faith that the dead champion was his guardian and protector. Was it true? Did he really receive uncanny aid? Read the facts. Well, well, you read the quote-unquote facts. I'm not sure... Uh, if I believe in ghosts, but I'm fairly confident that a lot of the readers of the uh, Ghost Stories magazine were at least ghost curious, if not actually believers. <laughs> what, what, what do you make? Did you ever think about this? Because I tried to find some connections. Um, the connections between the water and boxing. So. Uh, Howard wrote a lot of boxing stories, and almost all of them are about a guy named Sailor Steve Costigan. Uh, another story that's on, on my website is called um, 
waterfront fists. And I was thinking, why why is sailoring, being a sailor and being a boxer, such a uh, such a, a connective force? The British didn't invent boxing, but they certainly brought it to sort of the heights. And whenever you think about boxing, I mean, it, there's a movie on the waterfront, right? Yep. The, it, there's an intimate tie between the the ocean and boxing. And I, I think that's fascinating. It comes up here and there in the story, just a, like a word um, here or there. But I think it's 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 fascinating to think about all the undercurrents that are playing. And this is what is essentially sort of a hack work uh, pulp story. There are a lot of reasons that one could think of water imagery. Uh, I shouldn't say that. One could think of oceanside imagery um, for boxing. Um, I, clearly, not all boxing stories are rife with that sort of imagery. You know, the, uh, the rumble in the jungle. Sure. You know, I mean, there are lots of lots of boxing bouts. Uh, currently, the most lucrative venue for boxing seems to be Las Vegas, mm-hmm. which is in the middle of a desert. But uh, as I've mentioned before, beaches are a liminal zone where elementally contending forces meet. Um, and that happens again and again and again in, in fiction and in painting and so on. Um, the air, earth, fire and water. You've got the earth and the water um, really conflicting as the waves lap against it. It's mm-hmm. The ocean is much more prominently that than would be, say, um, a lake or riverside, Uh, in part because of the the ebb and flow of the tides. Now it's water, now it's land. Now it's water, now it's land. It's a never-ending struggle, and these are huge, huge forces. Men uh, on a ship of fools, men in a microcosmic environment, uh, what are they going to do, especially if they're not allowed to – indulge their uh, young energies and let's face it most sailors who get conscripted are not men in their 50s you know they're 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 lads um what are they going to do they're not sort of allowed to be homosexual that that won't work out so they can work off their energy by uh by boxing uh we see this happen in prisons as well mm-hmm. so they can break work off their, so there they are they're on the ocean, but they are not in the ocean. They're in a ship. So we have another one of these conflicting zones um, and they, they fight. The fighting is done for other people's entertainment when it's the fight game. And so what I think we need to see is that these individuals are viewed in many ways as if they are the property of, as it says right in the beginning, the manager, as it, you remind us in the life of Tom Molyneux, the owner. Mm-hmm. So they're people, but they're not exactly people, just as the British soldiers, uh, sailors were often cons- conscripts or people from the lower classes who could ha- had no better way to survive. So they, they put their bodies on the line. And uh, England took advantage of that, got its roughest people and, and, and ruled an empire. So 
what happens is, of course, this American and Tom Molyneux, if, if he went to England at the end of the 18th century, um, he's going very quickly, very soon after England has lost the colonies. Mm-hmm. It's no wonder they don't like this fellow. And of course, it was Englishmen in the colonies who authorized the slave trade. It's written into the Constitution. Can't can't import any more slaves after 1807, which sort of says we can have slavery. We just have to grow them ourselves. Right. So the, the racial aspects, the fighting aspects, the the stable of fighters that's controlled, it works with water imagery. Mm-hmm. And it works with order imagery in this particular story, I think, in part because of the transatlantic nature of the people involved. Yep. Gomez gets picked up from Africa to Spain and goes across the Atlantic, coming as still a, a savage. And he is, although not a slave, he is, in fact, the property of the Spaniard. Whereas Tom Molyneux is born into slavery, by luck fights his way out. And leaves in order to be able to keep some of his own winnings. Uh, Crossing back over the Atlantic uh, allows him, one would hope, to return to a place where he's at home. But he doesn't go back to Africa. He's not from Africa. His native language is English. And he goes back to England. Um, which, by the way, voluntarily got rid of slavery, I think, 1820. So it was, in fact, a free country. Um, it's not, however, a country without its own strains of racism. So the crossing the water back and forth, very astute observation, Jesse. Yeah, it, um, I, it came to me in, on page 20, the second paragraph, a form hove into view. That word, hove, is almost never used except in in imagery of ships it's it's the past tense of heave right a special right. half tense uh, and and it's about the slow heavy moving of a ship over the surface and and the funny thing is this is a metaphor to describe man killer gomez a, a form hove into view on the fistic horizon i love that he uses that adjective i think he just made it up for this story the fistic trail the fistic horizon Hove into view in the fistic horizon that dwarfed and overshadowed all the other contenders, including my man. And again, with the possession, right? This was Mankiller Gomez, and he was all the same. He was all that the name implies. Mankiller Gomez was all that his name implies. Gomez was his right wasn't was his right name given him by the Spaniard who discovered him, right? Again, like discovering a new land and brought him to America. He was a full-blooded Senegalese from the west coast of Africa. It, it, there's the there's at least two crossings in these these black men fighting, right? One from England to the United States, um, and then presumably back, and the other from Africa to the United States. And it's it, it's there's something special about thinking about just how rooted in its period this story is. You can't read it um, without thinking about all that came before, especially since it's about seeing... It, it, I mean, some people might say that this story is it's a cultural appropriation, right? That it's a white man telling a black man's story. And it is. But it's a man who loves boxing, and 
he loves the imagery of just i note that both black men in this story are are given uh animal descriptives one is uh called a tiger and the other is a i think it's a panther um, you mean the living black men yes the yes the living black men are both this yeah there's three black boxers in here um we never see much of Tom Molyneux's animalistic nature, but um, he, you know, the the cabling of the muscles and all that, the great de- bodily description, it's it's beautiful. Gigantic leopard, that's how uh, Jessel's described, right? Um, versus a tiger. This is not something that's, you know, it's not he's he's turning them into animals. Love, uh, not Lovecraft. Howard does this for every hero he makes. He gives them jaguar-like movement, or tiger-like, or panther-like movement, or lion-maned hair. You know, he—he he this but is reverential. A, but there's a clear distinction between Ace Jessel, who only only destroys people when he is pushed to the extreme and has no other way to survive the encounter but to push them to but to destroy them. And Mankiller Gomez, who just wants to wipe people out. Yep. At least that's what we're supposed to understand. And the descriptions are different. So the descriptions are of the nobility of the animal when it applies to Jessel, yep. and they're of the brutality of the animal when it dis- uh, dis- uh, when it pertains to Gomez. And in fact, I think that the Gomez there is another indication of the kind of anglophilia, um, the kind of uh, narcissism, racial narcissism Mm -hmm. on the part of Howard and the white audience of these fights. We're not seeing black people wagering here. The blacks are the entertainment. And if they kill each other in the process, that would get rid of the meal ticket. John says, you know, I didn't want, you know, to put my man in the position of being destroyed. Um, they are animals, but there's there are classes of animals. And it seems to me that Howard, yes, he does this all the time. Um, but I think we have to ask, what does it mean that he does this all the time? What is it? What what is being portrayed here? And I think what we're, we're, we're seeing is something that expects us to think that it's perfectly OK to use people this way. If not, then when John says, um, I will. I didn't want him to fight. We're supposed to think he's protecting him. Well, if he's protecting him, why does he change his mind? Yeah. He says he's more than a friend. He's more than a, 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 a boxer in my stable. He's my friend. Why is it that the friend calls him Mr. John? Mm. Right. It's same way that he would refer to a slave owner. There are levels of jingoism, patriotism, uh, racism. Uh, all through here. And we can tell that Mankiller Gomez is a worse sort of animal-like creature than Ace Jessel because he's got a low brow, so low that you can hardly tell where his nappy hair begins. He's described as if he were the classic stereotype Neanderthal. And he comes straight out of the jungle of West Africa. He hasn't been civilized so whites have made Ace Jessel better. It's a, a story, I think, for white people. Mm-hmm. And so it's not cultural appropriation. 
I don't think it's a story about a black man. Tom Molyneux may be real, but I don't think Ace Jessel is. Nope. So really, that's what I asked to begin with. Um, yeah, I mean, to return to what I asked to begin with, what's the story really about? Is it really about should we believe in ghosts or is it about other things? I would say perhaps the ghost of our behavior that we inherit as part of a culture. And although Howard doesn't seem to be saying it, I think we need to ask, what does it really mean if we can find this marvelous description of brutal encounter, something that is for us hopeful and uplifting? In other words, when he's done giving us the facts about this apparition, I think there is always more to say. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep.